Have you ever dreamed of going to Hollywood and making it big? We interview some of the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. My name is Sarah, and my father is John, a professional Foley artist in the movie business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSC winner for movies such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. We've made it our mission to inspire you to achieve your dreams. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast. Welcome to another podcast of the Right Scuff with Sarah and John, and today we have a mixer who's been around for quite a long time, done some incredible work, but not only in the film business, but also other areas, uh, recording albums and songs, etc. Anyway, he really has a unique history, and we're lucky to have him with us today, and that is Mr. Don McDougall. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And Don, I'm really just going to turn it over to you, and why don't you kind of tell us, if you wouldn't mind... How did you get started in all this? Well, let me preface it all by saying that I was born in Oakland, California, September the 3rd, 1934, in the middle of the Depression, and my mother died at birth. My father, his mother and, and father took me and my grandparents, my grandmother Agnes, my grandfather Alexander, and I lived with them all of my young life. I lived with my grandparents all of my young life. My grandmother Agnes and my grandfather Alexander were Scottish, born in Glasgow, came to America in 1908. And subsequently, uh, my grandmother, whom became a very great influence in my life, was enamored of music. She loved music so much. And gave that impetus to me as a young kid. And where I can remember the earliest, I would say the earliest reference to music was that I was interested in playing the piano because the piano made sounds that that I had never heard before. And I was three years old and I would pound the piano all day, you know, instead of doing anything else. And uh, finally, she got tired of listening to me pound the piano, so she got me a teacher, a young woman, I can't remember, Agnes or something, no, not Agnes, something handsome. And um, I started learning how to read music and to play and the concept of technique and all of that. And I did that for probably five or six years, but I was very, very good when I became five years old. Um, I had a prodigious talent, apparently, and it was wonderful because I enjoyed doing it, and it was something that I I did very well. Uh, Through the years, uh, high school, I had bands in high school and all that, but I wanted to be a ball player. I wanted to be a a major league baseball player was one of my innate desires. Uh, it never really panned out, but I played good ball in high school, but music s- just really took uh, took over my, my whole life. Uh, and I became enamored of certain players in the classical uh, jargon, like uh, Paderewski and uh, Horowitz and people like that. I couldn't believe that this kind of talent existed in a human being to play music, to make music. And 
I wanted to emulate that, but I realized, I think at a very young age also, in order to be that great, you have to have something that transcends the human condition. It's almost a, a mental attitude that very few people possess. And I don't think I ever really had that at that age. And I said that there's no way that I can be like Horowitz. There's just no way I can or Chopin or any of these guys. And I didn't give it up, <coughs> but I sort of put it in the back of my head. And I was influenced one day when I was about 12 years old by a piano player called Fats Waller. Fats Waller played stride jazz piano and one of his colleagues, Art Tatum, was a, a master at the keyboard who had a fabulous technique. And I heard jazz in a whole different light. It gave me some kind of inspiration to play that music. Well, in order to do that, you not only have to listen to a lot of records, but you have to, s you have to play at it. You have to feel it. You know, you have to do it on a piano if you're a piano player. And it took a long time to become proficient, at least in that idiom. And I did eventually and became a jazz player and played with a lot of bands. And uh, I worked for a company in Colorado called Alexander Film Company. I was the musical director there. And we it was the biggest advertising, theater advertising company in the world. And I wrote music for commercials. Uh, for everybody, Chevrolet, Ford, GMC, Dodge, uh, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola. I mean, there were just hundreds of clients that we had to service, and we had to provide music for them as well. Well, I did that for probably five or six years. And in doing that, because we were in an analog world, we had no digital uh, knowledge at all. Digital didn't even exist then, and this is the 50s. And um, what happened then was that you would have to mix, almost mix your own session if I had an orchestra or something like that, and I would go into the control room and mix the way I wanted to hear the band. So I became very proficient in doing that, and subsequently, in years later, I became a scoring mixer in Hollywood, which in my estimation is the most difficult mixing position you can have to be a scoring mixer with an orchestra on a stage and you have to do it instantly. You can't think about it, you can't practice it, but you have to put together a cohesive sound of an orchestra very practically and very simply. Well, I did that for several years too and did a lot of shows and moved into mixing dialogue and music on a, on a, on a recording stage, re-recording stage. Was this at a particular studio? Uh, I was at 20th Century Fox in the early, early days, early days, yeah, really. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did some major, major films, uh, Sinatra movies, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, Patton, Star, movies that were profoundly impressive in terms of audience response. And I was 
lucky enough to be with some guys who were literally pioneers in the mixing profession, Harry Leonard and Dave Dockendorf and these guys, they, they grew up in the industry before sound really became you know, a, a regular thing, a common thing. Vinton Vernon, for example, was one of the first scoring mixers ever. And he grew up through the ranks in the, in the silent movies. And when sound came out, he wanted to just be a mixer. He didn't want to be an editor or he didn't want to be a director, but he thought it was he was enjoying that so much. And he was a very big influence to me. Mm. And we um, recorded a lot of music. One of the most incredible scores we ever recorded was the Planet of the Apes, the original. And that music was done by Jerry Goldsmith. He composed the score, and it was the most incredibly complex score I ever saw or ever heard in my life, and never will again. It was an incredible experience. But... Um, did, did you find when you were mixing that, because there was so so much complexity to it, did you find you had to do things that you wouldn't normally do, or was it just you had to take more time? Or It took a little more time because you had to be selective, you know, very discriminating in terms of if you went from strings to brass to percussion, uh, you had to be aware of what was happening score-wise. You had to have the ability to read a musical score if you're a scoring mixer. That's one of the things that you have to do. And you have to know what is happening, and you have to know what is going to happen. That's important. Um, and we did a lot of that uh, in, in subsequent films, too. You know, um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Burt Bacharach, did the score. And um, that was a very complex score, oddly enough. Uh, I don't think people are aware of the fact that the music was accompanied. We also had a chorus. We had a big chorus in there with an orchestra as well. That was a very complex score to put together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But through all those years at 20th Century Fox, uh, I worked on a lot of movies, and uh, it was really a, a wonderful experience. And I'm going to jump back in and ask a couple questions here. With... Uh, now, with Patton, um, I assume you work with Franklin J. Schaffner to some degree. Yeah, Franklin was the director on the film. Right. And um, what we had, we had three, yeah, I guess we did have three crews on that show because it was a 70 millimeter, six track extravaganza. And we had crews that put together all the sound effects. In that particular film, I did work on a lot of sound effects, Foley and whatever. Mm hmm. And the crews at night would put together the material for the mixers in the daytime. And um, it was like a never-ending picture. It took about a year to make. Did it really? It took a year yeah. to dub that picture. Wow. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. It took forever. Well, it's a fantastic picture, I think. so. I think so, too. I think it was wonderful. Jerry Goldsmith's score, again, was a wonderful score. <laughs> right. Um, now, I... Also, want to talk. You did the Brinks job. Yes, I did. Bill Freakin. Yeah. Right, and and that of course was, was Gordon Ecker Jr. Somebody else we've also have talked to uh, on this podcast. Yeah. Um, was there anything about that film that that was unusual, or was it all pretty much just normal? No, I think the only unusual thing was Bill Friedkin. You know, he was a kind of a flippy guy, and he had a lot of important things to to say to people when he had a, had the mood, but uh, 
Uh, he was a bright guy. He he had uh, he had an acid tongue, and you had to be able to take it. And if you didn't take it, you didn't last very long. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and of course, you worked on a film that not a lot of people know these days, but um, it was a Steven Spielberg film called 1941. Yeah, that was a wonderful picture, John Williams score, and. Um, I don't think anybody really saw that film, but they should have because it's got a lot of great stuff in it. Yeah, the comedy's a little forced, but that's okay. Um, the music was wonderful. Right, and, and the visual effects were amazing, too. Visual for effects time. were great, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I'm just looking through here at the list, and you worked on Heaven's Gate. Yes, I did. Now, what was that experience like? Uh, Terry Malick, uh, the director. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike Cimino. I was thinking of another one, Days of Heaven. But right. Mike Cimino did um, Heaven's Gate, and he mixed it once at MGM with a crew, a completely different crew. And uh, the film was incredibly long originally. It was probably about three and a half hours. Um, the powers that be at Metro decided that they weren't going to have a film that lasted three and a half hours long. So they gave the film to Bill Reynolds, the editor, <coughs> to take it and shorten it. Well, Bill took it, but he didn't shorten it a great deal. He probably shortened it down to about two hours and 59 minutes. <laughs> but uh, it was primarily and basically the same film. It wasn't any different. And then Michael brought it to us at Tadeo, and we did it at Tadeo. And um, it took a long time to mix it because it was a very loud picture, and it was um, it was a tedious film. That's really what it was. <laughs> Boy, that's yeah. And I know you know he was blamed somewhat for you know spending so much money oh yeah. on the picture. Well, he did things that people had never done. But he built a whole city. He didn't build it out of paper mache. He built it out of real brick, <laughs> you know, buildings and, and structures and fronts and all of that. And um, he put a railroad in the city too. You know, whatever it Let's was. See, literally hmm? laid railroad ties and and and. Oh, absolutely! Oh the whole goodness. nine yards, man. It was a <laughs> an incredibly well-mounted film. If you saw it, you say, Mike, I've never seen anything like this, you know, and it was wonderfully done. Right. And I know, too, that uh, you worked with Chuck Campbell on some pictures, and the, the main event being one. Oh, yeah, did Barbara Streisand. Yeah, yeah, Barbara Streisand. I was going to yeah. say, did you, did you get, since, of course, your musical background, did you get a chance to talk to her at all? And I did a lot, yeah. She um, was the kind of person that if you had a different opinion about a certain situation and you made your yourself known that you weren't agreeing with her she would get really ticked off at that you know and she'd <laughs> look at you and say well what do you mean and you have to explain yourself but, and but i then guess what, i was good at it because i explained myself a lot to barbara <laughs> but i'll bet then she listened right because you know she did actually she did yeah she's a very wonderful performer and a, a pretty darn good director actually absolutely um, she did, she did a film I saw recently called The Prince of Tides, and she directed that as yes. well, and she was very good in that. Th a great picture, yeah. by the way, great picture. Um, now, of course, and this is, I know, like one question you get asked all the time, but I'm glad we've had a chance to talk about these other things, because I don't want anybody to think you're a one-trick pony. Far from it. But you did indeed work on 
Star Wars as yes. one of the original mixers. Yes. Okay. The question. When you first saw it, what did you think as you started to work on it? Well, before I saw it, George Lucas, was, it was the first time I had met him, and it was night. We, we, used, we worked from 8 at night till 8 in the morning. And George called me over to him, and I had never met him, and we shook hands, and he said, Don, we are about to begin a great adventure. Is that what he said? That's what he said. And I, and I said to myself, I said, gee, this better be something, man, because everybody touted this picture as a B-movie and something that really wasn't going to be too terribly important or seen by a lot of people. When I saw that first reel, I was not only blown away, I was mesmerized that this kind of thing could happen in a little B-movie. It was incredible. Wow. And um, George didn't really think much of what he had. He wasn't sure. He was very uncertain. And uh, when the music went to the, to the picture, the music really was the, the catalyst for making that picture exciting in the beginning and even throughout. But when he heard the music against the picture in six track 70 millimeter, because 70 millimeter picture and six track sound was unbelievable. People have never really heard that, nor will they ever again. Right, because it, it was analog. Yeah, you know, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And, of course, it, it did its best to destroy my hearing <laughs> because the, the decibel level in the room was incredibly loud, and uh, everybody was affected by it. Mm. Wow. Um, I'm just... I'm just it's interesting to hear that, you know, you say that uh, George was a little unsure... But you know, I guess that makes sense because, you know, now looking back, we could say, well, gosh, why not? But, you know, there was an old uh, story throughout the industry, which who knows whether it's true or not. But, you know, projectionists back in the day were uh, oh, kind of could be kind of a barky type of breed of people, wonderful people, but just, you know, kind of gruff, if you will. And I remember hearing in the grapevine, like one projection uh, projectionist that said, well, boy, there's this. Star Wars thing, I, I don't know about that. And of course, as we know, it's gone on to be <laughs> as what it has. And again, you just mentioning you're not a one-trick pony by any stretch, you have worked in the music recording field as far as albums and songs, etc. And forgive me if I'm not saying it correctly, but can you delve into that a little bit, specifically some of the talent that you've worked with? In music? Yes, sir. <clears throat> well, let's see. I've probably worked with almost every director, major director in Hollywood from the 50s to the 70s and even through the 80s. I even worked with John Ford. And um, Really? What was that like? I did a picture with John Ford that was a, um, it was a military documentary called Chesty Puller. And um, it was about the most decorated Marine of all time. And John Ford was in the dubbing room with us for a week at least a week, and he was a curmudgeon. He was old and was gnarled, and he would smoke a terrible cigar and drink a little scotch whiskey, and he was just a, an, an impossible man to converse with, and he had his daughter with him, and she was the voice, his mouthpiece, so to say, you know, and uh, he was... Uh, 
the kind of guy that just sat there and looked at it and either shook his head yes or the other way no, and that was it. I see. Um, there's a, 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 a crooner that you work with called Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So do tell us a little bit about Frank. Absolutely. Um, I did four movies with Frank Sinatra, and in 1975 I recorded Old Blue Eyes is Back, which was a wonderful album and probably one of his last. And he would have, we had a scoring, scoring to at, uh, we scored at the Goldwyn stage uh, because Frank recorded there back in his early days, and he had remembered that that stage was a wonderful sound. He did um, Guys and Dolls on that stage back in the 50s, I guess it was. Anyway, he wanted to emulate, re-emulate the fact that this was the kind of movie sound he wanted to have. And I had a 45-piece orchestra and Frank Sinatra behind a microphone all at one time. There was no overdubbing or any of that. It was all live recording. And he had... Um, he had built sort of a, somebody had built a tier of maybe three or four rows where his friends and, and you know, his colleagues and people like that would come and watch him record. And it was everybody in Hollywood, you know, from Johnny Carson to whoever. And he had a, uh, a bar and he had um, <laughs> a buffet set up as well, you know. <laughs> And we would do a take, and uh, he would say, okay, play it back, and we'd play it back, and he'd say, okay, now let's have a drink, and we'd stop, and it was lovely, a couple, uh, I think it was about four or five days, no, it was four days of recording at night, we recorded at night. Wow, so so truly, you, you would do a take, and then just listen to it, just to see, and not only that, as you mentioned, there's no overdubbing, it's no all live, in other words, you started all from live. the first bar and went all the way to the end, Yep. and of course, he was singing the entire, that's, that's incredible, that's something that does not really happen today. No, it certainly doesn't, and um, he didn't record many takes either. He Really? I think the most he ever did was three takes on a song, which was unusual. Wow. For him, because it was usually the first take was groovy, you know. <laughs> so you had to be right. That should be the title of one of your books, Don. The first take was groovy. <laughs> yeah, right. Just so right. you know. And I do remember hearing, um, I think it was from you, didn't he bring by a convertible one day for you to look at? The which one? Frank, didn't Frank bring a convertible car by one day for you to come outside and take a look at? Uh, was it a Ferrari? Oh, Yeah. Frank had a car. It had to be an Italian car. I can't even tell you what it was. A Maserati or something like that. And it was a black sports coupe. And on the interior, on the dashboard, everything in Italian, everything was written in Italian. He had somebody take these little s plastic stick-on things and to explain what this one was, a heater and a... <laughs> so we had it, and it looked awful. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was a terrible thing to see this beautiful car screwed up with all these patchwork signs inside. Because he couldn't read the Italian. No, he couldn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. No, he was cool. <laughs> you, 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 you truly have done uh, a, a breadth of things that most mixers have not done. I mean, typically, and not trying to put anybody else down but you know you having the uh, childhood you had 
you know, being a prodigy on the piano and then coming up and, as you say, you know, scoring um, and being a scoring mixer, but also recording somebody like Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's that's a breadth of uh, of talent that's not we don't see that a lot today. You know, people tend to specialize more. Is there anything from your experience that you would want to tell a younger person to say, hey, uh, try this or this is my experience. Is there anything in particular you'd like to mention to them? Yeah, I would. Um, if you have aspirations to becoming a mixer, especially a music mixer, you have to go to school. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go and learn ABC. But you have to go to school and learn how to read music, how to decipher music and interpret it for what it means. You have to be receptive to listening to the people that are doing the music so that you can be you can be a part of the process and it's not easy for somebody um, to become a mixer in the re-recording end of things which is like in a studio behind a big console is not as complex in a lot of ways because you have a digital format for everything today where you can take 10 or 20 pots and put them into one and, and it, it, it becomes a lot simpler to manipulate a board. So two men can do the job of what maybe three or four used to do. And analog was a such a, a different kind of medium. Uh, it's like an LP record, which I think is probably one of the better forms of listening to music. It doesn't exist anymore. I agree with you. You know, and CDs are okay. They're practical and all that, like two-track optical sound. and But they just don't make the whole essence of the sound happen anymore. Right. And, you know, to that end, then, is there any score of any film you worked on or any film that you didn't work on that you play these days that you love the sound of the music so much? No, not really. I mean, I did a lot of fi diverse films. Like I, w I recorded 1776, which was a, a motion picture about the American Revolution and the, and the start of how the Constitution was written. And it was a musical. It was wonderful music. But it was recorded simultaneously, orchestra and chorus. The orchestra was, I'm going to say, was probably about 50 pieces. Um, and the chorus was all the main principles of the film. Uh, that was a very complex score to record. It was a wonderful piece of music uh, throughout. And uh, I think that was an enjoyable experience. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that out. And of course, we asked, uh, we asked this question of many people that do, do the podcast. If you could get in the time machine and go back and see yourself as a younger person, is there anything in particular you would tell yourself that you now know that you didn't know then? Keep practicing, man. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Like the old expression, that's how you get to Carnegie Hall, you know. Practice, practice, practice. Practice. Well, I just want to say um, for myself and all the listeners out there, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and also... You know, we do have people that will um, potentially write questions to us on the website, et cetera. So if you wouldn't mind if we reach out to you and ask you those and we can give them back to the listeners, that would be great. And, again, thank you for taking your time, Don, Wonderful. to thank kind you of so much. show us a little bit about your, your history. And, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Right Scuff podcast. 
You could ask us questions on our website, therightscuff.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We also do a YouTube channel where we do a prop of the week. Last week we did an E.T. prop, and the week before that we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so be sure to check it out. That's YouTube at The Right Scuff. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We really hope you enjoy, and we'll see you in our next episode.